We're looking at sermon number two in this series. We're dealing with the biblical authority of church discipline. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the introduction to this topic. One of the things that I want you to see as we go through this, we're going to take our time. Because we're going to build this both within our confession and at the same time, we're going to establish it as the fact that it has been taken from the scripture. The full authority of church discipline is based on what the word of God says to us. And it says something to us in every aspect of our life. As Jason pointed out, Obedience, obedience is the practical aspect of Reformed theology. It's not empty words or slogans. It's actions. Words are important. They're supposed to have meaning, but that meaning translates into practical Christian service in your life. Why? Because rebellion against God, the scripture will teach, and we will look at this, is the same as the sin of witchcraft. Well, what does that mean? That means if you're in sin and you're in violation of the word of God, you might as well be practicing witchcraft because that's the way God sees you. Rebellion is unacceptable to God. Now in the Old Testament, rebellion will get you put outside of the camp. They'll cut you off. In the New Testament, in the apostolic age, get you killed. Remember, Ananias and his wife, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and he struck them dead. Well, you and I don't have that authority to put people to death. Now, the Roman Catholics did in their persecution of those who would not follow their faith, but we don't even believe in that. As a matter of fact, we don't even follow the Anabaptist teaching and practice of shunning people. That's not a part of biblical discipline. And we're not commanded to carry a big stick and beat people with it and beat them into submission. That would be interesting, I would say to say the least, because that's what we do with our children, isn't it? We discipline them. I've never been able to figure out the psychological understanding of how that one who is hit with a board on the buttocks of a child changes his thinking. Except that its actions have consequences. Well, in the discipline of the church, all church discipline has consequences. But we are not involved 
and punishing criminals. That belongs to the state. If you act in a way that is criminal, the state may put you to death. The church doesn't have that authority. We can remove you. And I don't mean literally physically because we want people still to come back. I mean the goal of church discipline is not to kick you out away from the church, but rather to recover your soul. If you're in rebellion, if you're in sin, the idea is to restore you out of witchcraft back into basic biblical Christianity. The Bible says, if you love the child, you're going to discipline me. Thus, in the discipline of the church, if we love someone, we have to want them to be restored. And it requires us to take actions. Church discipline, as we are going to establish, as we lay out the principle that it's based upon the word of God, which is essential to see in our confession, and then move on with the whole concept of what it is and dealing with the concept of, quote, censorship within the ecclesiastical body. As I said to you last Lord's Day, deals with three basic principles. Self-discipline, you constantly correcting your life when there's sin in repentance and acting according to the word of God. Writing your own ship in your life, as it were. Making your life walk the line of the confession of what we believe in practice. We're going to put an emphasis upon that. That's why we bring it here. Secondly, we teach you. We teach you the word of God in our church. As you just heard the second commandment being dealt with, what are we teaching you? How not to offend God. Do you not think witchcraft is an offense to God? If you're living in sin, it's witchcraft before God. Do you not see it as witchcraft too? If God says that's what he sees it as, you want to see it. And what happens to witches? In the Old Testament, God said, kill them. Now we can't do that in the New Testament. But they are to be seen as if they are practicing literal witchcraft. Because they're an abomination to God. What is our goal? Put them to death? No. Beat them with a big stick? No. To treat them in a way that we would violate the law of God toward them? No. Our goal is to love them and to restore them. Why? That they may be able to live personally and in their own familiar structure of life in a way that will please God and he will bless them and their home 
and the church as well. And just in case you didn't know, this is not just my duty. The pastors of the church have a responsibility in a republican form of government of which we are, we're not congregational, we're republican, we've got a job to administer and to deal with the church discipline, but it is on behalf of God's command for the body of Christ. You too are to be involved. You ought to be offended like God is offended if you say you're a Christian. Will you tolerate sin in your in the midst of you? Will you say, well, that's okay. You know, it's just, they're just messed up. No, they're not just messed up. It's just not wrong thinking. It's worse than that. It is the eternal issue of the damnation of their soul or the redemption of it. Now I'm telling you, if you don't want to do what the scripture says, you might as well tell them, go to hell, I don't care. Shame on you if you say you're a Christian and that's your attitude. You don't have the right. And neither do I. And neither do the pastors of the church. True church. Three marks. The biblical preaching of the word. The right administration of the sacraments. Both of baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is the third thing? Proper church discipline corporately. And individually within the church. Without which those marked. Any of them. Were not a true church. Is it hard to do? Oh you bet. Are you going to be accused of being the bad guy? Oh yes. Well if they're in sin. And they're acting like a bunch of witches. Why wouldn't you expect them to lie about you and say bad things, misrepresent you, and make you out to be the real evil people when you're doing simply what the Word of God says? And they're out of accord with the Word of God. Expect it. What we don't expect is other Reformed churches receiving those reports never once coming to us. And when we have asked for them to listen to us, some of them have said, we don't want to hear it. Shame on them. They're not reformed. They're rhinos. Reformed in name only. But we're commanded to love them. Well, when you love your child, do you let him just do whatever he wants? The Bible says no. If you love him, you're going to discipline him. Why? You've got to teach him the very principle of that fifth commandment that shows actions have consequences. And when you're young, if you can learn the proper teaching from your parents, but 
I'm telling you, people, I grew up in a fundamentalist background where, well, some of the parents would say, oh, I don't know what to do with little Jimmy. Beat his ass. I'm sorry. It's what the Bible says. Read the Bible. Now, I don't mean that in not in a very way of abusing a child. But the Bible says, put the wood to him. Why? Because actions have consequences. And if you don't love him enough to do that, and if you don't love your family enough to correct them in their problems, to bathe him not only in prayer, but you've got to take action. you got a problem in your Christian walk. You're either somebody who is only giving lip service to Christ, or you're somebody who is actually acting in obedience to the Word of God. I never met a kid that when they were disciplined, mom and dad wasn't viewed as being the bad guy. Always. Man, I don't like the way you do I don't like mom and dad. I know. I was a kid. Born in sin. My parents were really determined to drive it out of me. I think I could have pleaded child abuse because my bottom was so hot so often and I thought it was on fire. Why? They love me. Now, I'm not sure you could have convinced me of that argument back then. But I've learned over time. I've learned what real love is. It's obedience. It's obedience to the word of God. It's obedience to the authority God has given in the fifth commandment. Your parents. Why? It is the structure of civil society and social structuring. True biblical understanding of our duty and responsibility to those who God has given authority whether it is in the church, whether it is in the home, which is fundamental to it, as Calvin says, if they don't get it in the home, your church and your state are going to look horrible. Well, look at America. You think we made the wrong turn? You think that Dr. Spock, not the guy in outer space, the guy who wrote about raising up children, you think he went wrong? Yeah, he went left. It's not what we want. But if that's true of the home, how much more true of the church? As a matter of fact, it says, if you can't discipline your home, you can't even lead in the church because Christ won't trust you with it. 
But every time you correct your kids, that's the propensity to say, boy, I don't really like mom and dad. They're the bad guys there. Well, they're just like children in the church. They're supposed to be sheep. Sheep, they get over it real quick. They just don't attack. They don't say bad things. You just direct them back. You call them and they come running. They go out and get lost. You go find them and bring them back. No problem. They're just willing to get right back into the work and duty and responsibility that they have and do it. You're going to be the bad guy if you do what's right. You're not really the bad guy. God says you're the good guy. But as it were in this case, at least among our children, often in many of those situations, when they don't really understand and we haven't taken time to teach them. And I think you've got to do that every time you discipline them. It looks as if the good guys wear black hats. You know, the black hat in Western movies was to show this is the bad guy and the guy with the white hat was the good guy. Parents don't get to wear white hats. Neither do pastors and elders when they're in the midst of church discipline. What do we say? We want them to flee from sin. Please repent and come back. Do what's right before God. What is the response? Just like kids, these are bad people. We get accused of falsely shunning. I've heard that so many times over my life. I may become Amish. I mean, at least I got the beard already. But we don't teach that. We want them. When we mark them out and say, look, you're no longer a believer. We don't want them to quit coming to church. We want them to come to the very source of what they need, the preaching of the word, in order that they might repent. The Bible was going to lay out some principles of how we have to act. I mean, when they call us and say, hey, I know I'm under church discipline. I've been excommunicated, but let's go to a movie. The answer is, no, I'm sorry. You need to repent and come back to the church. But you don't violate the law of God toward them. If they're in your family, you don't turn them out. They're still in your family. But you can't, you cannot participate in their sin and rebellion. God will hold that against you. Because you're violating the word. And I'm going to lay that out and show it to you. But it is not shunning. And we don't believe that. Anytime we get accused of that, shame on them. Number one, goes to show they don't know what we believe. And number two, it's a lie to say we do when we don't. Just another sin. Isn't it funny how that you got to cover one sin with another sin and another sin and another sin? But the sin isn't against us, but it affects the body of Christ. Not only are the people supposed to say, we do not want this sin being treated among us. Do something. 
The responsibility eventually falls. When it says in Matthew 18, the church, tell it to the church, it's you and us. We have the responsibility to act as the pastor, as the centers of the church. The elders have that duty. But you have a responsibility to say, do your job. And if your elders are doing this, you need to get rid of them. Because they're not doing what God said to do. It is the hardest part of the ministry. Preaching the word of God, I love doing. There's nothing greater than being able to preach the word of God. There's nothing harder than dealing with people in sin who are rebellious. And when your only goal is to restore them, they decide it's time to make allegations against you. Happens every time. And I'm going to deal with some of those in the history of our church. And I'm going to talk about some of the churches in our area. I won't name them by name, but I'm going to tell you what we had to deal with. And I'm going to tell you the outcome of some of those situations, which we had under discipline trying to save the home, which the home exploded and ended in divorce and sin. And what we were trying to stop. And we begged some of those churches. Work with us. Their answer was. Nah, it's more important for us to get them into church. And get some money from them. And be able to count them. As a part of the numbers of the body that we have. But we weren't trying to do that. We weren't trying. If they wanted to transfer, once they had repented and demonstrated fruit of repentance that they had changed their life, we'd have transferred them. I can't make anybody stay in this church. Nobody here can. But I can't leave, let people leave that come under our authority who took vows. And the Bible says what? Don't take a vow unless you're ready to keep it because God doesn't forgive you. We're taking vows that are biblical and you rebel against it because you swore unto God. And he doesn't like that. You made him a promise. Now you got to bring me into that relationship. But it's got to bring you too. They took a vow before you and said, we'll do what's right according to the word. Doesn't that offend you at all? If you're not offended, check your Christianity. I'm not sure where you are. But something's wrong. We're all sinners. But if we are constantly checking out our sin, seeking to do what is right before God, that's one thing. That's self-discipline. That's why we're supposed to do that each week before we come to this table. But if you're not doing that, 
now you're either in a violation with brother and brother or the church law. Either way, it's going to come to the whole body of the church, and the church is going to say, we do not want this sin among us. You must deal with this. You are our shepherds. We're under shepherds to Christ. Do your job. And that means i got to put on a black hat. been doing this for 47 years. You don't have to tell me. I've been through this. Some of the worst evils in the churches that we have. People just let it go on. Are you kidding? I not only was, when I was young, a part of churches where they had so much sin in them, I wasn't sure if the non-Christian wasn't more of an obedient person before God than those who said they were Christian. The sins were horrible. It was like there was an old show that was called Peyton Place. For the old people, we know what that was. For the young people, you probably don't know. It was about a town where everybody was involved in sin. You had couples committing adultery and all kinds of stuff, lying. Think, by the way, just, just to remind you, remember when Paul was dealing with Ananias? God killed him over a lie, not adultery. David committed adultery. He got punished. Baby died. One son raped the sister. The other brother killed that son, and then he turned against David, tried to kill him, and David had to kill his son. But when you get to the New Testament, he just told a lie and they killed him. God's way of dealing with you, when the church says, God, we've done everything we can do, and they won't do what we've asked them. That is according to the word. The Bible says then you have to turn them over to Satan. What does that mean? Time to bring the fire of God down upon their life. And whatever is bound by us on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever is loose down here will be loosed in heaven. We're going to see that over the next few weeks. Just want to prepare you for it. If you don't show up, then I know where you're at. If you're really interested, if you really care about people's eternal, I don't care what they say. Saying it doesn't make it so. As Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said, hell is full of good intent. But good intent don't cut it with God. Obedience. Well... Let me get into my sermon today. I'll never get done. It's a problem with preachers, isn't it? We're long-winded. We are now going to look at the creed of our church. We've adopted this creed. You have taken vows to uphold this creed. We said this is what the word of God teaches. 
It isn't the word of God. It's men who have constructed it from the word. It's documented with scripture, which we will see and we will look at. But it is most important because it includes, after everything that is taught and said, way back in our understanding of chapter 30, out of 32, it talks about the church and church censors. 29 chapters are covered under your duties as a Christian. Then it turns the authority of the church and those who would violate the law of God. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read the historical ecclesiastical principle of censorship and the authority thereof as was held by the reformers on the continent and in the Puritans of Scotland and England. Now we turn to chapter 30 and we're going to look at, as it's entitled, of church censures. Section 1 states, The Lord Jesus as King. Now listen. The Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, as the king of his church. You understand? He's king. Your job? Worship the king. Your job? Be obedient to the king. You can say, oh, well, I'm worshiping God, but I'll do it in my way. No, no, no. You've got to do and live the way God says to do it. Your life is worship. The, the aspect of our corporate gathering is worship. The Lord Jesus Christ as king and head of the church hath therein appointed a government. He has given us a government from scripture. We're not Democrats which has got a really nasty, ugly name today. We're Republicans. Why? Because we represent the people according to the law of God, to the word of God. The law is king. I don't get to make it up. If I did, you wouldn't like it. You'd all be in ties Perhaps black ties or red ties, might get, let you get the red tie, white shirt and a suit. Got to have on black socks, no white ones, no blue ones. And you got to wear a certain kind of black, pretty wingtip shoe. I can make up all kinds of rules. You can't dance. You can't go to movies. You can't do this, you can't do... I mean, you, you know, anything you do, you got to use discernment naturally by the law of God. But the point of it is, men make up moral perspectives or laws that are legalistic and not biblical. God didn't give me that. He says the word is king. 
That's how Christ is represented. The word. And the word has appointed a government. It's appointed by Christ. Christ is the king, the head of his church. In the hand of church officers. Other words, our confession says, those who are to administer that government have been given the authority. Those who are officers within the church. Distinct from the civil magistrate. Very important point. We read in the Scion College of Ministers this statement as to the intent of the prescription of church government as stated here in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I quote, But the pinch lies in this. I like how they said The pinch lies in this. Whether there is any government in the visible church, we no, or divino, divino would be the Latin phrase. What does it mean? By the divine right of God. Is it appointed with divine authority? And if so, which of those church governments which lay claim to use divinum or divine law, if you will, for their foundation may be most clearly manifested by the scripture to be the divine right indeed. If the former is conventionally affirmed, the fancy, that is to say, they use this word to mean the conceived ecclesiastical idea of the Erastian and semi-Erastianism of these times, they're in reference, what? To the Church of England, because that's who they have separated from. They did that deny all government to the church distinct from the civil magistrate. It will vanish. It will vanish. It will no longer be seen that the king the civil magistrate is the head of the church. <laughs> no, no, no. Christ is the head of the church. He's not going to let you unthrone him. And his law is king. The king is not the law. But that's only if you have the right form of government. Well, they go on to say, and I think this is very important, so you know the intent of it. If the latter is solidly proved by scripture, there is a divine right of a true church government, it will appear distinctively also. Then we will expose the monarchical government of popes and prelates. The idea of someone ascending to be, as a human, the head of the church. The pope or someone like an archbishop. Or the mere democratical government of all the people in an equal level of authority. God didn't give the church government to the people either. It's a republican government. And they go on to state, as among the brownest, they were congregationalists back in that day, and the separatists, referring to those who wanted independence, who were 
Puritans and set upon the idea of completely leaving a body and each church becoming its own authority within it. Or the mixed democratic government of both elders and people within their own single congregation only, without all subordination of assemblies and the benefit of appeals. They throw out the structure that the whole church has to be accountable to each other. There have to be opportunities for people to appeal their cases. Why? You know, if you're not happy with something going on in your church, you can go to the Presbytery. Everybody who's a member of our church can go to the Presbytery. And if they don't like that, they can take it further to the General Assembly. But without that subordination, it's like being an independent. You're simply saying there's no case for an appeal. That's just not true in a Republican form of government. Or rather, the pure aristocratical government of the Presbyterian governors. The church governed and representing their members according to the word. By what? The divine law. Not by the divine will of them, but by the divine law and will of God. Which is what? Laid out in scripture, of course. And thus they say, which is the authority of Christ given in the scripture to the church. That's the form of government. Only. No other form. Without the congregation. Congregation is not involved in that. Oh, they're involved in picking those who would teach them and preach to them, of course. That's their right of ascendancy. If the Presbyterian will approve that individual, that he demonstrates the gifts and the knowledge of the calling of ministry. But in subordination to superior synodical assemblies and the appeals thereunto, as it is among the Presbyterians, is that particular government which Christ has left unto his church by divine right, they said. And in comparison of which all others are what? To be rejected. They are not and do not distinguish themselves as being a biblical church, properly organized. And thus they become what? Because they do not have the right structure of government, they don't have that mark properly upon them. Everybody accountable in Presbyterianism. I'm accountable to the Presbytery and the assembly. You're accountable to the pastors and elders. You're accountable to the Presbyterian, to the General Assembly. You get to pick your pastor. You can say when other men, and one day here, hopefully in 10 years, if I can finish getting these guys trained, I'm going to get pretty old. I'll be about 75. I want to get on with my life to take care of and work with my grandchildren more. 
You're going to have to pick. Will you accept them as your elders and pastors? But that's your right. I can't tell. I can't make them. I don't have that authority. I can train them. you got to pick them. But when you pick them, you've given them the authority to exercise the word of God properly according to the divine government appointed for this church and to our church as a denomination. So let us draw things, therefore, to a clear and immediate issue about the divine right or authority of biblical church government. Let this general proposition be laid down, they said. And here is where they finish this. The scripture declare that there is a government by divine right or authority in the visible church of Christ now under the New Testament. Now, the first manifestation clearly from scripture and we're going to look at quite a few of them, not all of them, take forever to get through. It's laid out by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, then he talks about helps, governments, in which place these things are plain. They are plainly laid out and given to us. First, the apostle Paul speaks of the visible church. For he had formerly spoken in this chapter concerning the visible gifts of the church. But that could not have been to a specific church only, which would have been none of the other churches would have had it. He's talking about the visible church Universal visible. We have invisible universal, made up of everyone who is a believer. But then we're talking about the visible church, made up of believers and their children. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 7 says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now we're seeing the foundation being laid here in the early church. You didn't have the New Testament written back then. You had probably some of the Gospels floating around. But primarily you had the Old Testament. Imagine being able to know what the New Testament teaches by looking at the Old Testament. That's why the Bereans, Paul says, were more noble. They could take the Old Testament word and say, you know what Paul's saying is biblical. This is what has been prophesied about. And he speaks the truth. I dare say to you, I'm not sure if there's many Presbyterians that could do that. And probably the way most of the education is going today, it ain't going to do it. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge 
through the same Spirit. Then in verse 9, to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. 10, to another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of the spirits. To another, differing kind of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works in all these things. In this New Testament illustration, as the New Testament is being given, God hath given the church as it is growing up. He's laid a foundation by which he is gifted his church. Not everybody has the same gift. He keeps saying, to one it's this, to another it's this. So to believe that everybody has these same gifts, that everybody must have them, that's a lie. It's not following scripture. But these were laid out there. As the progression of revelation comes, so does the forming of the new church in its administration and duties. But here we see clearly, he says, verse 11, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as what he wills. For he says to us here, as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also what? Is Christ. We are one body together in Christ. He also compares this church of God to a visible organic body consisting of many visible members. Verse 12 and forward. And in this 28th verse, he what? Enumerates the visible officers of the church, which I read to you earlier. He enumerates the officers that are given to this church. Secondly here, the apostle speaks of what? One general visible church. He does not leave it up to them to make up what they will to please. Your church is either by divine government appointed authority or it is not. And it is only one visible church, not thousands of individual churches. Nowhere is that taught in Scripture. Nowhere is it taught in Scripture that a king or a pope can head the church. No man can be the head of the church except the man Christ Jesus. For he says, not churches, but what? Te ecclesia, ecclesia, the church. It's in the singular number. That is of one church. We call it the universal visible church, but it is one church. Besides, he speaks here also of the church in such latitude or scope as to comprehend in itself all gifts of the Spirit, all members and all officers, both extraordinary and ordinary, which cannot be meant of the church of Corinth only. It's impossible. Or of any one particular church, that is, 
the concept of an independent church, but only of that one general church on earth. Third, let me get through this point and then we're going to end. The apostle then speaks of this general visible church here, and he meant the church of Christ now under the New Testament and not under the Old Testament. For he mentions here New Testament officers only in verse 28. Therefore, in the visible church now under the New Testament, there is a what? Settled authority, settled government, by what? Divine authority. Hard to mess this up, but you know what? We've seen it done in church history. Why? Because people wanted to do their own thing. And this is what Pastor Jason was talking about earlier in in the class, dealing with the introduction, dealing with the shorter catechism, the introduction to theology. We're not here to take upon ourselves the authority of doing what we please. We're here to be obedient to what is commanded. Besides the offices of apostles, prophets, and teachers, here is mentioned another sort of officers distinct from them all, called in the abstract, governments who guide and order the church. So these officers called governments have a power of governing and directing the spiritual welfare of the church both corporately and individually. They too share in the government and censorship of the church with the pastors. Theodore Beza wrote, and I quote, that the church is the order of presbyters who are keepers of discipline and church polity. For how improperly should these or any officers be styled government in the church if they did not have the power of government in the church settled upon them? Nor can this be interpreted of the civil magistrate. For when the apostle wrote this, the church had her government, when yet she had no civil magistrate to protect her. And when she, and when did God ever restart this power from the church and settle it upon the civil magistrate? Besides, all other officers here enumerated are purely ecclesiastical officers. How groundless then and absurd is it under this name of the government to introduce the political magistrate into the list and the role of mere church officers. Well, I'm going to end there today, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to revisit this because I'm going to look at all the scripture that begins to support this as well. It's not one scripture. There's many scriptures. Very important. But here's the point. More than anything else. This is not your church. This is not my church. This is Christ's church. And he expects if you say, I am a disciple of Christ. 
wise, not a student. A student may study anything. You could study Karl Marx. That doesn't make you a Marxist. But if you're a disciple of Karl Marx, you are a communist. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you're a Christian. If you're just a student and you always flap your lips and say all oh, the right things people want to hear, that doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you a liar and a deceiver. No, no, no. The Christian is a disciple. But you're a disciple of one king. Jesus Christ. And you owe all obedience to him. You know why? Because the Christ who saves you by the death of going to the cross is the love of a God being shed for you. And he will not let you tread underfoot by living in sin. And thus what? Trampling underfoot the blood of Christ that was the Savior from that sin. Church discipline isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. Dave is probably one of the oldest members of our church here today. Been with me close to 25 years. You know what? Dave's never been disciplined. Do you know why? Dave lives by the word of God. If he wants to know something, he comes and asks it. When he show what the word of God says, not what the word of Pastor Ken says, what the word of God says. He lives by it. 25 years. Boy, if we were a cult, he would have been beaten two or three times probably. Just for good measure. No. He lives as a disciple of Christ. And that's all we can ask. Will he have to deal with sin? It's going to be there. He's a sinner saved by grace. You still got to deal with that remnant of sin. But it doesn't require to involve the church because he's doing self-discipline. And it never gets to that level. If someone would come and say, I'm offended, David, do everything you could to restore that relationship. It doesn't even have to go to level two. But when you don't want to live by the word of God, that's how you end up in trouble. And that is your job and my job. That ought to be as offensive to you as it is to me because it offends the Christ that you say died for your sins. Now I realize people don't like church discipline. But I'm telling you, we're not trying to beat you into submission. We're trying to love you and appeal to you to repent and to live by the word of God. We don't want lip service. Lip service will bring you nothing. My goal and my duty and responsibility as a pastor 
And as our pastors have this same duty, it's to watch out for your soul. You know what that means? I'm supposed to be sure that in my life, I keep working to try to drag you into the kingdom as if it could be done to see that you're saved. And if you don't like that, then you don't like Christ because he's the one that commanded it. I'm going to show you that. And I'm going to show you where he says, over and over again, you too are involved. You too are to say, you've done the right thing, pastor. Don't stop doing it. Man, if I get into sin and rebellion, and if my salvation becomes a question, please, by all means, show me from the word what I must do that I will know that the day I die, I'm not going to be surprised and be in hell when I wake up. I'm going to be sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, the one that I said died for me, the one who I lived as an obedient disciple of him. That's my job. And if that makes the pastors and elders of a church the bad guys, then I guess we're just going to have to be the bad guys. But that's wicked. The bad guys don't go talking about this. We just don't. We don't go out and tell everybody what's going on. Most of the time, you never know what's going on unless they drag it out among the body and then we got to go and say, look, you brought it out to the whole people. You either lived openly in sin or you've promoted it among the people. And we've got to deal with it then because you brought it into public. We don't bring it into public. We deal with you privately. But we don't go out and tell people, hey, you know what? <laughs> people are wicked. We're supposed to, when judgment comes down on you, we're supposed to inform every Reformed church in our community that you've been disciplined and you've been set aside as one who doesn't prove to be a child of God. That's historical to our practice. I've never done that, but you know what? I think I better start doing it. And those churches that don't, they're going to find me at their assemblies making complaints. Why do I have a bunch of rhinos living in my neighborhood? At least put out your flag and say, we do not practice Reformed theology here. We may say we're Presbyterian, but we don't practice the marks of the church. Maybe it's time to call out names. I don't know. Name churches. What do you got to do to change this? Boy, we have so far departed of what God's word said. Do we do it perfectly? No. There's times that our Presbyterians will say, you didn't handle this the right way. And they'll say, go back and do it the right way. I gotta go back and do it the right way. I don't get choice. But that's why we have an appellate system of government. That's why everybody's accountable. No one is without being accountable to each other in this denomination. And you ought to thank God for that. You got an independent pastor over you, 
That's the last authority on the issue. And if he's wrong and not doing what the Word of God says, you got no appeal. I love it when they say, well, now I'll be accountable to God. Yeah, that's a favorite phrase of mine that they always say. But the reality is they already decided that they're in right step with God with what they're doing and they got the authority to do it and they're not going to hear anything else. I don't have that luxury. I have to be accountable to all my brethren. I submit myself to their authority. I agree to be under their authority. And for 47 years, I've lived with that understanding. And I've always been willing to do what's right when it needs to be done right. I've come back, especially when I was a younger pastor, told the church, I've made a mistake. I need to apologize. I had one elder in my church. I had offended him and didn't realize it. I didn't try to justify because if he was offended, I had to believe it. And I apologized that he almost passed out. I said, why? And he says, I've never had a pastor in all the years I've been a Christian ever say he made a mistake. I said, brother, when I sin, I've got to repent of it and make it right. And if I've offended you, I've got to make this right. Even if I didn't intend to offend, I've got to make it right. Why? Because I have a king that said, you got to make it right. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. My question to you today is, how do you fit in the church of Jesus Christ? How do you see yourself in your role as being a member of a church? You took vows to uphold all of its government and all of its doctrine. Do you think there's any responsibility that's going to be incumbent upon you that would not be incumbent upon me. Got news for you. I'm going to show you. That's not the case. Whatever I'm bound to. You're bound to too. Not because I said it. Because it's in the word of God. And that's who we owe obedience to. How's your Christianity doing? a question. How is it doing? What is your heart's desire? Are you trying to mortify sin in your life? Are you trying to kill it? Are you really at war with sin because you're so in love with Christ? You don't want him to be offended with sin in your life? That's the question. Because if you live in sin, then you will, you'd be willing to walk up and kiss Christ just like Judas. And betray him. Why? He says because you're rebellion. Your unwillingness to repent is the sin of witchcraft. You're a witch, that's all. And you ought to be treated as one. Please. Don't go back. For the salvation of your soul, do not delude yourself. 
you're not going to violate the word of God and get to heaven. Because when you stand before God, he already said it in his word. And we'll see this. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your Have we not done miracles in your Have we not? And he said, depart from me. I've never loved you. You say all these things, but they weren't done according to my word. They were done according to your own authority. I've never loved you. You've never been a child. None of us want to be. And there's thousands of churches and church people that are going to go to hell, along with many pastors. Which is why daily we're told to make our calling an election sure of Christ. Daily. Check your life. Shall we pray?